0: morning. It's great to see you this morning. Great to be in worship together. And if we don't know each other, I'm the teaching pastor here in Belmont. My name is is Brian. And we are going to uh, spend our last Sunday today in our Story of Scripture series. Next week, we're going to start a brand new series. We're going to be in the letter of 1 John uh, for a couple of weeks together, which I'm really looking forward to. That's going to be a great series. Uh, But we're going to finish off this story of Scripture series that we've been in today. And I know from talking to people over the last couple of weeks, over the last couple of months, we've been doing this since Easter, uh, that there's been some benefit uh, to many of you have said. It's been great to be able to get above the story and to talk through uh, the narrative that runs all the way through Scripture. There's all these little episodes in the Bible, right, hundreds of them, maybe thousands of them, stories that happen in the Bible. But there is one giant narrative that carries through the whole of Scripture, and that's what we've been talking about. In the very first week, uh, we said it's, it's kind of like going through a corn maze. If you've ever done a corn maze, and uh, this fall, if you've never done one, you can try it, and then you can look back and you could say, oh yeah, that is kind of like the sermon series that we did. When you're in the middle of that corn maze and the corn stalks are six feet high or seven feet high and you can't really see over them and you're trying to make twists and turns, uh, it can seem very challenging to figure out how it all pieces together. How do we actually get out of this thing? But if you go online and you get the drone view of the exact same corn maze, all of a sudden it's very easy to see the path that runs through the hole. And so often we come into a certain text on a Sunday morning of, of Scripture, and it feels like we're, we're down in it, which is a good thing. We're in the middle of that maze. But it's hard for us to be able to pull back and say, okay, how does, how does the letters in the New Testament fit with the law in the Old Testament? How do all these things weave together? And so that's what we've tried to accomplish a little bit over these last couple of months. And the thing that we've said over and over again that I hope you'll hang on to— is that the Bible is 66 books, 1,189 chapters, and is one story? The first week after we said that a couple of months ago, uh, someone someone came up to me and, and said, uh, or, or I heard somebody said to somebody else who came to me, and said, uh, "Yeah, but but how many stories really are in the Bible?" <laughs> and I and I get it, right? I get there are a lot of different stories in the Bible. But, the, but there is one giant narrative that runs through the whole, And so that's what we've been talking about. We've said that in order to really understand the narrative, we need to understand how our Bible is organized. Now, I haven't made you do this in weeks, all right? Some of you know what's coming. This is the last Sunday, and I want you to hang on to this. I want you a year from now to be able to say exactly how your Bible's organized, right? So we're going to do this one last time. Uh, Justin was preaching a couple of weeks ago, and he called these Pastor Brian's lottery numbers, all right? These are not my lottery numbers. This is how your Bible's organized. Uh, the second he said it, I'm like, it does kind of look like that, doesn't it? All right, so here we go. Everyone clap with me. Here we go. Repeat after me. 5, 12, 5, 5, 12, 4, 1, 21, 1. 5, 12, 5, 5, 12, 4, 1, 21, 1, all right, give yourselves a hand, that was good, it was excellent, all right, uh, and we've said that throughout this, so 5, 12, 5, 5, 12, right, five books of the law, those first five books, the books of Moses, the Pentateuch that they're called, 12 books of history, followed by five books of poetry or wisdom literature they're called, The five major prophets and then 12 minor prophets. And just a reminder that major and minor does not refer to their importance or what level of baseball they played. It refers to their length is really all it refers to. The major prophets tend to be longer, minor prophets shorter, but their messages are of equal importance. You take those five and 12, those five, five prophets, major prophets, 12 minor prophets, you have to pick them up, actually the five books of poetry too, 5, 5, 12, you pick all those up and you drop them into the books of history. Chronologically, that's when they get written. And so sometimes that's a bit confusing because if you're wondering when the minor prophets are written, you've got to go back to the first 12 to figure all of that out. Categorized by genre, not necessarily chronological. Then you get to the New Testament, we have four Gospels, the life and ministry of Jesus, one book of church history, the book of Acts, 12 letters which Andrew did a great job talking to us about or 21 letters I mean Andrew did a great job talking to us about last week and then there was one right which we're going to talk about today we've said this that the story of scripture is god with us so that we can be with him we're going to see the culmination of that today in this one book of prophecy which by the way is also a letter we'll talk about that you have 21 letters In the New Testament. You really have 22 because the book of Revelation is also a letter, but it's different. It's also prophecy, which the other letters are not prophecy, and so we'll talk about that today. I've got to be honest, coming to the book of Revelation, I mean, there's just no possible way that in the time that we have today, I'm going to be able to give you a proper treatment of the 22 chapters in the book of Revelation, and as I've been preparing this message and, and to talk to you this morning, I've found it actually more challenging to condense the book of Revelation into one Sunday morning sermon uh, than some of the longer passages that we've done, whether that's 12 books of history or five books of the law. This to me is more challenging than that. And coming into the book of Revelation too, there's, there's this dynamic that I think takes place in the church. That also makes it interesting to try and come together and prepare one single sermon, one single talk around this book. The book of Revelation is unique in the way it's been, I think, treated throughout the history of the church. And it seems like people go one or two ways on this book. Uh, recently I've been watching, uh, it's no secret that I, I enjoy a good athletic event, and there's a lot of, it's the time of year that there's, there's a lot of finals going on. And so you have the NBA finals, and you have the Stanley Cup finals, and you have uh, yesterday the, the European Champions League final, right? There you go, Jonathan, I'm trying. I'm trying to, to broaden my scope, all right? So yesterday you had that final, and all of these things that are, that are, that are happening around the world, and I suppose you could apply this too to like a, a giant concert or event that's on TV. Uh, you look in the audience and there's, you see two kinds of people that in the, in the audience at these kinds of events that, that make me just kind of say, wow, I, I can't, I can't believe that's happening at that event. One, the, the masses of people I don't pay attention to, but sometimes they'll show people courtside and the seats that cost, you know, tens of thousands of dollars and while they're sitting courtside at these giant events, or they're sitting, you know, right behind the, the hockey players, and the, they're, they're just on their phone. And, like, they're, they're, too, they're at the front row of Taylor Swift, and they're just on their phone. Like, like it's not, like, that big of a deal. And they're, they're better than it. They're over it, right? And, and, so, and like, there's that side. And I, that, I'm like, well, why, why do they get that ticket, right? Why do they get it? Uh, I'll never forget, in 2007 we had an assistant coach for the Celtics that attended Mount Hope, all right? He's still an assistant coach in the NBA. And he had one ticket left to the game that, um, that the Celtics won the NBA championship that year. He had one ticket left, and he gave it to a guy that was attending our church that's, at that time who was a New York Knicks fan. And I was like, why? Like, why? Knicks are not involved in this. Anyway, they're both from New York, whatever. So there's those people. The Knicks fan, when the Celtics win the championship. And then the the camera will switch to someone who's, like, you know, too old to be doing this, to be honest. And they're painted, like, green head-to-toe. And they have a giant chain on with like the logo of the team. And they have some sort of hat on. And you can, it just feels like that, that their entire life revolves around this, this team. And maybe a little bit too much. It's just too much. And they're over the top. And they do whatever they can to get on camera. And they're leading the crowd in cheers. And I'm like, so the, the, on the one side, I'm like, you need to pay a little bit more attention. And on the other side, I see that person. And I'm like, all right, take it down a notch, right? And I honestly feel there's something similar with the book of Revelation that happens in the church because some people don't know what to do with this book. They just don't know what to do with it, and so they just keep it at a distance, and and if that's you, because that honestly, if you want you want me to be honest from the stage, which you probably do, uh, that's the way I would lean is when it's not 100% clear, I just kind of say, ah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. But people like me, we need to pay more attention to the book of Revelation. And then there's some folks in the life of the church that, I mean, everything that happens. The, the town of Belmont passes a new zoning ordinance, and they're like, it's just like in the book of Revelation, <laughs> right? And you're like, all right, it's not just like in the book of Revelation, Okay. So there has to be, there has to be some sort of, of balanced understanding around this prophecy. Honestly, uh, I'll say one other thing. Honestly, as I've gone through the book over the last couple of weeks, um, we need to spend more time here as a church. We need to spend some more time here, and so I don't know exactly when that's going to happen, but that's something that I was convicted of as, as we were, and I felt God saying to me as we we're preparing this message over the past few weeks, so we're going to find a time uh, in the future to, to spend some time here and really talk through it. So I feel like what we have time to, for today is, is a co- a, really an overarching principle, and then I want to give you three, three guidelines, I'm going to call them, for reading the book of Revelation. Things that I feel like we have to keep in mind as we look at the book. And then I want to give us one point of application. That's what I want to try to do today. One overarching point, three guidelines, and one piece of application. And the overarching point that I want to to make this morning is that the book of Revelation, though it is a challenging book to read sometimes, and it is full of symbolism and idioms and other things that can be challenging for the modern-day reader to fully understand, the book of Revelation can be understood, and it is useful for your life today. The book of Revelation can be understood and is useful for your life today. That's the one thing I hope that you, that you understand as we, as we get into this conversation. It's not something that should be kept at a distance. Even people like Martin Luther, who's a great leader in the Protestant Reformation, he kept this book, and there was no secret to it, at a distance, because he, he, he didn't know what to do with it. And we don't want to be like that. It can be understood and is useful for today. So what is this book? Well, right in the first three verses of chapter one, the author, John, uh, gives us what this book is. So here we go. The revelation, and that Greek word there for revelation is the apocalypsis, right? That's the, that's the Greek word. And so we get the word apocalypse from that word. But it's important to understand that the original Greek meaning of the word apocalypsis is much more in to, to shine light on or to reveal than it is what we've turned it to, into in English. If someone's talking about the apocalypse in English, something bad is happening, right? There is war and famine and all sorts of stuff. The original Greek word really means revelation, just understanding, right? So this is greater understanding about Jesus Christ is what we're getting here. Which God gave to him to show his servants the things that must must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near." And I think that third verse is important for us. It was certainly important to the original readers of John's letter, which as we're going to see in a moment, are seven churches, historical churches that existed in Asia Minor at the time. John is writing this prophecy in letter form to those seven churches. But he's also talking to us. And he's saying, blessed are those who hear this prophecy, blessed are those who pay attention to it, and blessed are those who keep what is written in it. And so that's important for us, for the time is near. So as you look at the book of Revelation, and as, it's, as John said, this is, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as we look at the book, I see, for myself, and I'm sure other people could look at this differently, I see a few different divisions throughout the book in which we learn something new about Jesus. Or maybe it's not something new, but something is confirmed about who Jesus is. So if I look at this book, we have chapters 1 through 3, and then we have chapters 4 and 5, and then we have chapters 6 through 18, and then we have 19, we have 20, and then we have 21 and uh, 22, all right? And in each one of these sections, I see us learning something new about, or being reminded of something about who Jesus is. Something is revealed about the person of Jesus Christ. And in chapters 1 through 3, Jesus is seen as the head of his church. He is the the one who is coming to to reveal this through his angel. The angel is coming to reveal the prophecy that has been given through Christ. But here in chapters 1 through 3, he is the head of his church. In chapters 4 through 5, and again, there's no possible way we can read all of this. He is the sacrificed lamb. In chapters 6 through 18, and this is... You know, in here, there's a lot of imagery that's challenging. Jesus is judge over the earth. He is meeting out God's justice on the earth in chapter 6 through 18 at the end. In chapter 19, he, he is the returning king on a white horse. In chapter 20, he is the reigning king over the millennial creation. And in 21 and 22, he is the restorer. New heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. He even says, Behold, I am making all things new. I don't know many books of the Bible that include at the very beginning their own outline, but the book of Revelation, lucky for us, includes an outline because Jesus comes to John as he's, John, if you don't know, is he is um, on the Isle, a small island called Patmos, and he is, he is there imprisoned on this island, and that's when the revelation comes to him, and one of the things that Jesus says to John early on is he says, write this down, write down the things you have seen those that are, and the things that are to take place uh, metatauta, after this. That's what the angel says to John. And the Greek phrase for after this is metatauta, and I'll tell you why I think that's important in just a second. Because you have John here uh, coming out of Revelation 119, and here he is talking about the things that are. There are seven churches in Asia Minor And if you flip through through the book right now, you can just see the headings, all right? And one of them will sound very familiar because one of the churches is in Philadelphia, not in Pennsylvania, but in Asia Minor, right? And so uh, one of them you might be really familiar with is the Church of Laodicea because the verses, the message to the church at Laodicea tends to be one of the uh, more well-known messages, Right? God says, Revelation 3, chapter, I mean, Revelation 3, verse 15, he says, uh, you're neither hot nor cold because you're lukewarm. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Maybe you've heard that verse before. So those, that's all in the messages to these seven churches. There is a challenge to these seven churches because what John is saying and what the revelation reveals is that it is difficult to be a Christian in that world. In first century, there's a lot of persecution happening. It is challenging to be a follower of Jesus Christ in the midst of persecution and all of those things. And the big question is, will these Christians of these seven churches, will they persevere until the new heaven and new earth comes? Or will, as all of these things are happening, as as it's getting more and more challenging to follow Jesus Christ, will they give up and quit? And there is this message early on when it comes to the things that are, where Jesus through John is defining to these churches where they're at. So to the church in Laodicea, um, you're 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 not good for anything. That's what I think he's saying there. I don't think he's saying cold water's bad and hot water's good. And we can get into all this if you want to. I think he's saying cold water's good for something, hot water's good for something. You're lukewarm, so you know I I, I can't use you. Like be good for something. And, to the, and, and so, and even the church at Pergamum, which is one of those, and they're giving their worship to idols. I mean, you can go in Berlin once, and there's a, there's a museum uh, called the Pergamum Museum in Berlin. And we walked in, and there was the altar to the uh, Roman gods that sat in the city of Pergamum that's been restored and put into this museum. And so, these are historic places. That's the altar that, Paul, that, Jesus, that John was saying, don't worship at this altar. That's what is. And then in verse 119, it says, write down all those things that are to take place in the Greek phrase tauta," after this. The first words of chapter four are metatauta, after this. And so what I think and what other people think is that that means that these are all the things that are to come. I think that there is, there is absolutely truth to the fact that, as Andrew said, some of this is already happening in heaven right now. But the full revelation of these things uh, is yet to come. So the book of Revelation, not only can it be understood and begin to be interpreted, it's useful for your life. The question is, as you start to read through it, what are a few guidelines? I want to give you just some basic guidelines and then an application. Here's one guideline. As you're reading the book of Revelation, and you're going through all of these chapters, one, please do not interpret the book of Revelation in isolation. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. The book of Revelation has 404 verses. It was written to a first city, first century audience of seven real churches those people who were in those early churches were very familiar with the old testament scriptures there are at the very least about 250 and at the most some people have counted far more hundreds than that but there's at least 250 out of those 404 verses allusions and direct quotations back to the old testament and so if you're going to understand exactly what's happening in the book of Revelation, you can't just read the book of Revelation and then try to figure out what it means. You can't say, oh, the four horsemen, right? Uh, that's that's got to be the four people on Mount Rushmore, right? You can't make those kind of conclusions, but people do. You have to go back and understand that, that this was gr- this, all the prophecy, all the metaphor is grounded in the Old Testament. I'll give you an example. In Revelation chapter 5, we have this moment with a scroll. We just sang about it. Spoiler alert, we're going to sing about it again, all right? You have this moment in heaven with a scroll with seven seals. And John says this, he says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, that's God the Father, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open up the scroll and its seven seals. It's such an amazing picture. But to understand it, you have to, you have to begin to go back into the Old Testament and to start and look. Probably a good place to go is Daniel 12. Many of you know the book of Daniel, you got the fiery furnace, you got Daniel in the lion's den, but many of us stop there. The second half of the book of Daniel is all prophecy and visions as they relate uh, not only to the to the God's people then in the next coming years, but to the end of time. And at the very end of Daniel in book of chapter 12, the angel that's speaking to Daniel tells him to seal everything that's been written until the end of days. And so some people look at that and they say, now this, that's the scroll. God gave this vision to Daniel. Daniel says, I don't fully understand this. And it has been sealed since that moment. And now you have somebody that can open it up and reveal the revelation that God has given And so unless you understand what's happening in Daniel 12, it makes it really hard to understand what's happening in Revelation 5. But to the first century audience of these seven churches, this would have been an easy connection. They would have known this. There's this story in Jeremiah chapter 32 uh, about property transfer. And Jeremiah is redeeming property from one of his relatives, and in order for that redemption of property to take place, there are scrolls with seals that are created and then handed back and forth. And so some people have said, well, if you look at Daniel chapter 12, you get this idea that's part of the revelation, but maybe there's also this like this property element to it, that it's ownership of the universe, and that no one can, can unbreak these scrolls and claim ownership. And I kind of like that interpretation too, but that also finds its interpretation in Jeremiah 32. And some people say, you know, in current Roman times, when this was written, you needed seven witnesses to transfer property. So maybe that refers to the seven seals. All I'm saying is none of those are necessarily 100% definitive, but you can't understand what the scroll is unless you're understanding what's already been written. And that brings me to my second point, second guideline. Revelation, what must mean what it meant— and what I mean by that is it's not going to mean something today that it didn't mean to the original hearers of the letter, the original seven churches. So you have to, you can't just take the, the um, allegory, you can't take the metaphors, you can't take the idioms and just look around the world and try to apply them. Somebody at the beginning of, of uh, well, someone a couple years ago sent me a, a sermon from a pastor in California and they were very excited about it. And the pastor was looking in the book of Ezekiel, which also includes a lot of um, apocryphal prophecy. And the pastor was going through and, and was saying, you know, well, this clearly in the book of Ezekiel refers to Vladimir Putin. And this clearly in the book of Ezekiel refers to Iran. And this clearly in the book of Ezekiel. And I just don't know how you can draw those kinds of conclusions so definitively. We have to first say, well, what did it mean when Ezekiel wrote the book? What did it mean to the original hearers? Now then, how can we apply that in our world today? So it's not going to mean where it, what, it's, it's going to mean what it meant. And where you're not sure what it meant, be humble. Be humble. You get to something like, like the reigning king who reigns. Uh, over the the new creation for how long? Does anyone know? I hear a lot of mumbling. There you go. Someone knows. All right, 1,000 years, right? Now, you have very different understandings. Good Christians disagree. They love Jesus. They love God's word. They disagree. Some people, and I would lean this way, Believe that this a thousand years refers to a literal time frame, a thousand years that Jesus is going to rule. Some people, some Christians, would say, "Well, uh, we think the thousand years more refers to the time period that we leave, live in right now, from the resurrection of Jesus Christ until the time He returns. That the, the thousand years isn't like real a thousand years; it's a time period in which we live right now." Very faithful Christians who study God's word, believe both of those things. What happens is, is that one group says, you know what, those people that don't believe this is really a thousand years, that at some time period, they don't take their faith seriously. And I was listening, I was listening to um, a teaching as I was preparing for this sermon, and I really appreciated this pastor. I never heard of him before. He was doing such a great job with the book of Revelation. He was strong on a literal thousand years. And he said, he said, every amillennialist I've ever met, that's amillennialist, that means time period. You don't believe in the literal thousand years. Every amillennialist I've ever met doesn't take the book of Revelation seriously. See, then now I have a problem with that. because it's not true. And so we have to be careful, we have to hold these with humility to say, I, you know, I've sat with people that have an amillennial view and I, and I hear them out and I say, I can see how you get there. And then I sit with people that have a literal thousand-year view, and that's the way I lean for sure. And then I say, I I can see how you get there. And we have to be careful that we're holding some of these things with humility. There are places in the book that we are told exactly what things mean. It happens in chapter 1, with the seven lampstands equaling the seven churches. There's seven lampstands in chapter 1, and John says, these are the seven churches. Clear. But there's other things that aren't so clear. And we have to hold those things with humility. In chapter 5, this is what happens, right? When Jesus, that, by the way, I didn't even say it, but the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, the way you understand that that's Jesus, Old Testament. And when Jesus had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So you have these 24 elders around the throne of God. Some people think it refers to the 24 priests that were set up in 1 Chronicles chapter 24 that were representatives, representatives of the people in worship. Some people think it refers to the 12 tribes of Israel plus the 12 apostles. Do you know which one it is? Me neither. I don't know. I mean, it could be either. But you know what the truth is? What the truth is, is that there are 24 representatives representing the people and nations that are worshiping the Lamb, seated on the throne, and that they are there helping to lead in that worship of the Lamb. That we can know for sure. That's what that means. But, but who the 24 are? We've got to hold that with some humility. And I'm, if you have a conviction on that, that's awesome. That's great. But just hold it with humility. Here's the final thing, and if I'm honest with you, I think this guideline is the most vital. As you read the book of Revelation, allow your heart to worship Jesus Christ. That is why this book is written. We started out at the very beginning of the book in Genesis And we say God created things the way that they're supposed to be. And then it was broken. And it is broken. And nothing is the way it's supposed to be. And I don't have to spend that much time convincing you that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. Uh, My guess is you feel that every single moment of every day in your family relationships, uh, in your work relationships, when you watch the news. You can just see something's wrong. It's broken with the world around us. And the question is, who is it that can restore things to the way that they are supposed to be? And as you walk through the book, we realize that God did not leave us on our own to figure that out, but he takes the lead as he makes covenants with Abraham and with Moses and with David and the new covenant that he makes through Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. And then we see in the book of Revelation, as we come to the book, that there is only one who has the ability to unseal the scroll and to roll it out and to make creation back to what it was supposed to be. And it's the one who comes as a judge and the one who comes as a king and the one who reigns and the one who is ultimately the restorer of all things the way that they should be. And that is Jesus Christ. And what happens is, is we take our heads and we get so buried in the book of Revelation that we say, well, what does this mean? And what does that mean? And let's look at the newspaper and let's look at the daily news. And oh, it says that this is gonna happen. I can see that happening. And we get so involved with our head that we forget. The reason John wrote, the reason God gave this to John in metaphor and pictures is that our hearts might be overwhelmed and consumed with the glory of the God who loves us and of his son who reigns and restores supreme. That's why it's given to us in this way. You ever been, been uh, somewhere uh, incredible? I don't know what it is for you that just makes your heart sore. For some of you, it's, it's, it's you climb a mountain and you're on the peak and it's just phew, the beauty of God's creation. You can't take it in. Some of you, it might be getting away from the city lights and seeing the stars. Some of you, it's sitting on the ocean's edge alone and just taking all of that in some of you love to to walk in like maybe it's the symphony or it's a beautiful piece of art and and you don't need to explain all of it You just have to sit there and take it all in. And when you take it in, your your soul is lifted up, and your heart begins to worship. And the worst thing that can happen is someone can come along and say, well, you know why I don't like this piece of music? Because it's written in B-flat, and B-flat is not the right key that this song should be in, right? It just destroys it. John gives us this revelation. God gives us this revelation through John that we might be swept up in the picture of all that is happening in heaven and all that is to come. And if we don't allow our hearts to be led into worship, then the book is not doing what it's designed to do in and through us. Because the reality of the book is this. The reality of the book is that it's going to be harder to follow Jesus before it gets easier. That's the reality of the book. And while that reality is taking place, we see these pictures in heaven, right? As as the people, they sang a new song, sang. We just sang these words, right? Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. That's you, that's me, from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign over. On the earth, that's heaven's response to this reality. It should be our response too. Point of application. And I'm going to invite our worship team to go ahead and start to come back up, if they would. Andrew, maybe as as they would you help me just set this down here. This is if you take one thing away, a point of application today. It's this. Revelation is not written to cause you to fear. It is written to build your confidence in Christ. I see this happen quite often in the church where we hear everything that's coming and we get fearful, fearful of what's ahead. There is, within the book of Revelation, both challenge and hope. A letter to the seven churches. It's hard to follow Jesus today. It's going to get harder. Will they persist? Will they survive? Will they continue to be faithful until the new heaven and new earth is established and Jesus restores creation as the way it's supposed to be? Will they be faithful or will they remain lukewarm? Or will they keep giving their worship to idols? What are they going to do? That's the tension within the book. And then the tension goes to us as well. What are you going to do? There's part of me that when I see our world and our culture walking away from Jesus, does want to fight against it. But there's part of me that recognizes too, that God said this would happen. And the question is, are we going to be faithful? Are you going to be faithful to the Lamb? To the King? Are you going to trust Him? Are you going to trust your life to Him? Revelation 6 through 18, I mean, it gets harder and harder to follow Jesus. That time is coming. Another time people have different views on is the tribulation time. I don't want to get into all of that and the years and, re- and when that all takes place, but I know this about the tribulation because Jesus says it in Matthew chapter 24. It's going to be worse than any other time in history. I don't know how else to put that lightly. That's what the scripture says. It's going to be the hardest time that the world has seen. You think about all the hard things that our world has gone through, that tribulation time will be harder. The world's going to move in that direction. Will we trust the Lamb? Yesterday I was at a, a um, graduation party. A guy came up to me. In March, he went for a cancer scan. Clean. Doctor said, your cancer's gone. Last week, he went for a cancer scan. It's everywhere. And the doctor said, you have two months. So he came up to me and he said, you're, you're a pastor, right? <laughs> I said, potentially. He said, I don't, I don't get it. He's like, I listen to all these, I've been over the last week, I've been listening to all these different people, listening to all these things. He's like, I just want to know what happens next. He's like, it's a freight train coming. I can't stop it, right? The next two months are what they are. I feel that. I feel that happening. It's, it's so out of my control. It's really frustrating. And of course, my heart breaks as he's telling me these things. He said, but what happens? Like, do I know that I'm in the dirt Do I I just show up and start talking to God? Like what what is it? He said, I listen to a hundred people, I get a hundred different answers. And all I know to say in a moment like that is to ask him, which I did. Have you entrusted your life to Jesus Christ? Do you trust him? Have you repented? Is he in control? The man said, yeah, absolutely. I said, then here's the thing. I, I don't, there's things we know and things we don't know. I, I don't know what happens next, 100%. I have pictures in scripture that I cling on to for hope, but I, I don't know the steps, right? I can't give you like, hey, here's the list, right? You get in, you step to the right, you go forward. There's a man there. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. But I know this for sure. if Jesus Christ has a hold of your life and he's redeemed you and restored you, you're going to be there. You'll be there. That I know for sure. There's always things that we don't know for sure, but what the book is designed to do, the prophecy does, is it reminds you of the things that you can know for sure. And here's what you can know for sure. If you'll entrust your life to Jesus, in the end, God will be with you and you will be with him. And if that isn't worthy of worship, I don't know what is. I'd invite you, if you would, to stand as we begin to close our service and song today. There's this verse in Revelation chapter 22, right at the end. <laughs> Jesus says, "Listen to these words." The end of the book. Jesus says. I have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches, for you. The seven churches that received this letter and you, the church today. I've sent these things for the churches for I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star, the spirit and the bride. Do you know who the bride is? The bride is the church, That's, that's us. The spirit and the bride say, come. Return, Jesus. And let the one who hears all of these things, that's you, that's me, let us say, come, Lord, come quickly. And let the one who is thirsty come. I love that line. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. So I don't know where you are this morning, but if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, as we worship in this moment, it's our opportunity to say, come, come quickly and to thank god for who he is if you're thirsty this morning if you don't have that relationship with jesus christ this is your opportunity to begin it and you can start by worshiping him thanking him for who he is receiving forgiveness for your sin beginning relationship with him